There he is. The man, the myth, the legend, uncle. <laughs> what's going on? What's going on? Nothing. What's up with you? Can't complain, man. On time today. <laughs> I'm the one who's late today. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Just going to wait for a few more people to join. We're talking about the fall of the Aksumite Empire. Here's some interesting stuff. Hello, everybody. Hello, Nunu. Hello, Febu. Yeah, I got a haircut today. Yeah. Got the beard lined up, you know. I couldn't deal with the Rona cut anymore. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, things are open up now, so mm -hmm. you know, we got the chance to go to the barber and all of that. Exactly. I don't know about the beard. Oh, the beard's okay. But then we come together. Is that a thing? Is growing out a beard a Tagadalai thing? Oh, yeah. And, uh, like, they would uh, keep their beard in their hair. So they had the afros and the beard going on. Mm -hmm. Which was, uh, I think, the source of the reason why they would call us uh, Kamalam. Because uh, we wouldn't <laughs> yeah. shower necessarily, right? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, if you're <laughs> out in, you know, the bushes, you yeah. don't have access to a shower. Oh, none of that, man. You're lucky if you got mm -hmm. to drink water. So. Yep. Mm hmm some of the stories. One day we got to have a uh, Tariq time with uh, Tagada Layan. Yeah, no, you we, know? We, we definitely got to interview a couple mm -hmm. of them. Mm -hmm. Okay, we got some people. Um, I think that's enough. We can start. So, guys, today we are talking about the fall of the Aksumai Empire. Last episode we talked about um, Aksum's trade relations. We talked about, um, I think, St. Yard, right? Yeah, yeah. We talked about the nine saints. We talked about uh you know the territorial expansion of the Aksumite Empire, all that jazz. So today I'm just gonna read a little bit of like a, a little thing I have prepared. Um so people um um understanding a kingdom is essential to understanding its potential causes of collapse. So the kingdom of Aksum, also called the Aksumite Empire, was certainly a very powerful kingdom, and it was centered in northern Ethiopia and Eritrea. It was uh, occupied by agrarian people for a long time, so people who farmed and also people who uh, engaged in um, uh, herding different kinds of animals, mostly cattle. Um, and it condensed into a confederation of kingdoms. So let's see. Let me just scroll. This is from my previous stuff. Okay, so much of the difficulty in uh, understanding Axum's collapse comes from the lack of primary sources. So we talked about this last time. As one historian put it, they are meager in the extreme. Axum did have a writing system, but much of its writing lent itself to brief inscriptions rather than detailed histories and records. So most of what we can tell from these inscriptions is that Axum was strongly hierarchical, was likely highly urbanized, and that priests and traders were valued very much so. Um, there are exceptions such as the Izana stone and a few other uh, longer inscriptions, which records uh, King Izana, the first con conversion of Aksumite or Aksumite. I'm oh, sorry, I don't know what I wrote there. Um, but most of these inscriptions are, are propagandistic celebrations of military victories and little is known about daily life, the exact history or the role of different people. So women as such, determining a precise timeline is difficult. Um, generally, there are three sources of primary information, so oral Ethiopian histories, mentions in classical accounts, and archaeological excavations. 
So as for classical sources of uh, classical sources, one of them is the uh, Hadith, an account of the life of Prophet Muhammad, which covers some of the history of Aksum's reign from 615 to roughly 630 AD. This account is a little bit, you know, suspect from a historical point of view because, um, you know, it's it's a, a religious text, so it may not be the most, you know, accurate. Um, another one we have is something called the Periplus of the Erythrian Sea or the Red Sea, written by a Greek scholar. But it's very, very vague when it comes to talking about Axum. It doesn't really have, you know, too much uh, detail in it. Um, and uh, from what we know from oral histories, they are, they can provide windows into, or, you know, different periods, but they're not super reliable. So the most valuable source we have is generally considered not to come from writing, but from artifacts and more specifically from coins, as we spoke about as well last time. Axum minted its own coins, the first African state to do so. And uh, they were usually inscribed with the, the face of the current king, two ears of corn, not necessarily corn, um, you know, some sort of uh, usually wheat barley, yeah. wheat. Yeah. Um, the king's name and title and a phrase, uh, sometimes peace to the people. Of the 34 or so known Aksumite kings, 26 are recognized on coins. So this system of universal currency was part of what made Aksum so successful and its changing state. Uh, minting was altered with each new king and the addition of Christian symbols as the kingdom converted shows us how Aksum was doing throughout its history and throughout its decline. In earlier eras of Aksum, Coins were more plentiful, making them easier to date. But as time went on, the quantity seems to have declined. And most of the latter specimens were single surviving specimens of issues or bewildering array of mutually exclusive factors to take into account. Oh, oh. See, I've been I worked six days last week. So, you know, my notes are a little bit. Um, but from what we know, the coins of the later Axumite kings appear to have been much less finely made than earlier coins and have a much lower gold co content going from 97 percent to 54 percent. So they were also less widely distributed in the later era, suggesting a loss in control over vassal states and reduced trade. Around this time, between 500 and 600 AD, the mottos on the coins changed from phrases praising royals and religion to ones that begged for mercy and peace from God. All of this evidences a, a sort of decline in, in Axum's power. By late 600 or early 780, the minting of coins ceased entirely. Sometime before 750 AD, the capital was largely abandoned in a strangely abrupt fashion, and replaced by a new one further south called Kubar, which we don't know exactly where it's located. There's different, you know, speculation. Um, all we know is Axum was on its way out. So I think we kind of talked about this uh, before, maybe, and I think the general sort of overview we did the first episode. But there are a lot of theories as to how um, Axum uh, Axum's collapse began and what the proverbial final nail was. But there's multiple factors. So I'm just going to go over, I think, like three or four. And these were probably all interrelated. OK, so the first one is overextension. We covered this last time around 600 or 700 A.D. Now, I think 500. An Aksumite king named Khalid launched an uh, invasion of Yemen. This war was initially successful, but it was very, very expensive and seems to have been unpopular. We also know that one of King Caleb's generals um, defected, mm -hmm. right, Abraha. So we know that it was an expensive war, an unpopular war, and after they conquered it, one of the, the generals defected and took the land for himself, so they didn't receive any tribute or anything for it. 
So that's a huge um, unsuccessful war effort that was made at this, that time. Um, and it's also interesting to note that inscriptions for kings after Caleb are increasingly scarce and their chronology is increasingly obscure. Uh, the second one we have is climate and overuse. This one gets talked a lot about uh, about a lot, and it's 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 quite important. One of the most cited reasons for Axum's decline is climate. Around 500 AD, a rapid increase in aridity took place in modern-day Ethiopia's northern highlands, meaning the land became a little bit more dry. Right? Um, this could have devastated crops, uh, of which uh, Axum grew a multitude, including wheat, barley, af, sorghum, and many more. As Axum continued to grow, the number of crops growing increased, exhausting the soil. Additionally, Axum was heavily reliant on wood charcoal, which would have led to mass deforestation, further degrading the environment. Later, around 750 AD, large floods in Egypt were recorded. And since the flooding of the Nile would have depended on the rains around Axum, the former capital, this might have meant the devastation of uh, Axum's crops due to erosion of soil, which was already damaged by earlier dry periods. Um, evacuation of Axum showed possible evidence of this erosion, which may have been a factor in moving the capital if the switch happened that late. Um, one ancient writer also referred to a multitude of locusts and the damage which they do, and others reference a cattle plague, both of which, which uh, may have contributed to the damage uh, done to agriculture. But all, again, we know very little of this period of time. Uh, another factor would have been too much autonomy for vassal states. Um, when Axum conquered its uh, surrounding lands, it relied on a modified uh, feudal system. So after tribal leaders uh, pledged allegiance, they were left to their own devices for the most part. And this probably wasn't the greatest idea as these tribal leaders eventually began to launch rebellions. Uh, though details, uh, details are somewhat scarce, there are several brief mentions of tribes like the Beja and Agao causing unrest on the outskirts of Axum, um, which if true would have meant that Axum would have been cut off from valuable trade routes and resources. The Hadith also makes a brief reference to several rebellions and several ruined cities uh, and, and uh, evidence of them being burnt down. Uh, similarly, an inscription on a pedestal at the city of Axum shows that a man called Hatsani Daniel seized power over an Axumite king towards the end of Axum's existence, though whether he retained this power is unknown. Okay, and the next one is trade issues. In addition to possible loss of trade because of rebellions, Axum's marine trade routes also seem to have been blocked by pirates, Arab Muslims, and the Persian Empire. The little is known about the specifics. Furthermore, with the uh, Persian incursions into Arabia as Jerusalem and Ag Alexandria fell to the Persians in 614 to 619, trade with the Mediterranean and Arabia and further east towards India and China would have decayed or even been entirely blocked. Um, Axum relied heavily on imported goods, and this would have been devastating. There's also evidence that Axum may have had less to trade in general due to decreasing ivory and gold supplies, though this is mostly uh, speculation. So we can see how all of these things tie together. So um, too much autonomy for the border uh, tributary states, climate change, overextending with Caleb, um, and trade issues resulting, and then you get a gradual decline of the Axumite Empire. There is also some people talk about the plague of Justinian and roughly the 500s and that, how that would have contributed. I'm not super, you know, into that idea. I don't think one plague is going to destroy a whole empire. Um, okay, so do you have anything to add to that, uh, Uncle? No, you, you hit the nail uh, on the head, right? Um, mm -hmm. As many say, with the, uh, 
with the Nugus Kalib entering Yemen. Some people call it the swan song of the Aksumai Empire, meaning uh, it overexpended itself by going there and uh, created the downward spiral of the Aksumai Empire. Then, of course, you have the erosion of the land. Uh, and as you mentioned, the capital might have been abandoned somewhere around this time. Um, some have speculated uh, it may have moved east towards places like Wuro or Andatha. Uh, but again, we still don't know. I also like to highlight Indamakoni as being a place Mm -hmm. As the translation has been traditionally translated as Mekwanin. Mm. So um, you get many famous people, even people like uh, Suhail Mikhail, uh, mm -hmm. trace their ancestry to uh, the Asifaris, going to mm -hmm. Mekwanin, and many others as well. Even with the Hatsani Daniel um, and uh, many other figures uh, that will come up later on uh, are from these areas. So it, it may point to the possible location of the Kubar uh, uh, town. Okay, cool. So, yeah, but, but yeah. Here, answer. Um, if anyone has a question, put the question in the question box and we'll uh, answer it later. We'll have a little uh, question and answer period. I have a question for you. I've seen mentions of Resi Faris, the great, many, many times, but I can't find even a paragraph about him. So what can you tell us <laughs> what you know yeah. about him? Uh, so what I do know about him is uh, he's traditionally known as uh, Resi Faris, the great. He mm -hmm. is uh, born and raised in an area called Bora Salwa which mm -hmm. is um, just east of the Ago region um, okay. and uh, west of uh, places like Adrashuhu, Maicho, uh, so on mm -hmm. and so forth, south of Samra. Mm -hmm. um, all I can really find out is that one, he's obviously a powerful warlord and two, he is the ancestor of Suhan Mikhail. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, having many kids, uh, people like Shum, Walla Garima, um, even uh, I think his grandson was uh, Dejat Hiskias. The father okay. of, uh, of Suhul Mikael mm -hmm. and uh, a few other people may lay the claim. But again, like you said, you, you can't even find uh, as much as a paragraph on it. Okay. So, I was hoping you knew more. So, yeah. <laughs> no, no, uh, I've tried, trust me, I went to the location specifically trying to find it all. Oh, you uh, went physically? Yeah, physically. I went to Ndamukhani. I went to uh, places like Addashuhu, uh, Adalla. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, Borasaloa. Of course, Borasaloa is actually two waradas. Or two areas, mm -hmm. sorry. So there's Bora and then there's Siloa. Okay. So Siloa is more famous than uh, Bora, but traditionally they're known as the same. Just like places like um, Medavai Zana, as mm -hmm. Medavai is one area, Zana is another. But, mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, like I said, uh, <laughs> only traditional stories and even at that, very few. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, now we're going to move on to a topic I really enjoy talking about. So... What is said to be the the actual you know death knell of the Aksumite Empire, Yodit Yodit Gudit. <laughs> okay, so I have some stuff that's a little bit um, not traditional, but why don't you tell us what uh, who Yodit Gudit is? Okay, so in the tradition, uh, she is said to be half Adwa, half Aksum. Okay. Background. Mm -hmm. um, and I believe there is a, a diakon of uh, St. Mary's Church in, in Aksum mm -hmm. uh, who, who was uh, interested in the girl, wanted to marry her. Mm -hmm. And um, she had the royal blood. Mm -hmm. So she goes, oh, I'm, I'm of the, the aristocratic family. Um, if you want to marry me, you have to present some kind of gift. As mm -hmm. a dowry of, of sorts. So she wanted shoes. So he goes to the curtain of the St. Mary, the mental life. And mm -hmm. rips the curtain, uh, which is made out of gold, and mm -hmm. uh, pulls, uh, makes a shoe out of it. 
presents it to the girl and the priest of Aksum come and say, who, who, who ripped the, the mint olay, which is the dividing line between the Holy of Holies and uh, the, the, the place where the congregation uh, sits. And uh, once everything is uh, expressed that all oh, the diapa came, ripped it and made the shoe, uh, she was blamed for it. So uh, she was persecuted. I think uh, her left breast was cut off and she mm -hmm. ran to either Egypt or someplace in Eritrea. Mm -hmm. And um, she marries uh, a, a warlord of sorts, and they come, and of course, everything happens, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, a Jewish, I think it was a Jewish warlord. So, it could be Sudan, mm -hmm. could be Egypt, could be in Eritrea, I'm not too sure. Mm -hmm. uh, so, the traditional stories go, uh, go something like that. Another story, uh, using uh, another account, is that um, there were Jews in Aksum that were banished towards the West mm -hmm. in uh, around the third or fourth century uh, during uh, Izana. And they they revo they brought the uprising. So places like in Walkaito or within Sudan itself, uh, came and took over. There's another account uh, as such. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it was the first one you said. Is that like <clears throat> the church account or or what? Yeah, or is that just? A... <laughs> it's a it's a folk tale actually. It's a, a folk. Okay. Like priests will say this. Mm -hmm. uh, if you go to some of the churches, but it's uh, like from place it's... to place they have different uh, things. It's interesting that that was the first version you told me because I didn't hear about that one until I read it uh, from a document that I'm going to start um, uh, mm -hmm. referencing. So that's interesting. That's the, the first one you talk about. So I'm going to sort of skim through an article because I'm not sure like how much time do we have? We probably have like maybe like a half hour left and I don't want to take up too much time. So I want to leave some time for questions. Again, everybody, if you have questions, put them in the question box and we'll answer them. So this is um, a study, essentially, 34 pages, it's not really that long, done by a guy named Knud Taga Anderson for the University of Cambridge, where he talks about the Queen of the Habesha in Ethiopian history, tradition, and chronology. So he analyzes all the different myths, the dates, blah, blah, blah. I'm going to like not go through everything because we don't have mm -hmm. all the time in the world and it might just confuse people. But um, okay. So we have, uh, it's well known from uh, Ethiopian tradition that Ethiopia was once ruled by a queen called Gudit, Yodit, Isat, or Gawa, with both positive and negative connotations. So on the one hand, she was a beautiful woman of the Ethiopian royal family, much like the Queen of Sheba. That's why I found it interesting that you said that, because I didn't know that version, that she was part of the Ethiopian, the Aksumite royal family, until I read it here. And uh, you're the first person I've heard say that. Everything else I heard, I only heard the negative stuff. She destroyed everything, yeah. you know. Um, on the other hand, she was a despicable prostitute who at the time of political weakness killed the Aksumite king, captured the throne, and as a cruel ruler, destroyed Aksum. Another tradition deals with Mesebawark, the daughter of the last Aksumite king, Dilnad. Uh, against her father's will, Mesebawark married a high-ranking military official called Meretakla Haimanot. Mara from the province of Mara. Okay, Mara Tekla Um I'm reading like, you know, a Ferengi's transliteration. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, sorry, from, yeah. the, from the province of Lasta. And together they, take, they took over the Ethiopian from, throne from her father and founded the so-called Zagwe dynasty, which in later Amharic tradition became the object, object of contempt because its kings did not belong to the so-called Solomonic dynasty. So, uh, in spite of the different names and other variations in the story, there can be no doubt that the two traditions deal with the same woman and the same reality. Namely, that a strong female ruler rose to power in Aksum, ended Aksumite rule, and made way for the Zagwe dynasty, which became 
despised in posterity. Okay, so now we're gonna move down. Okay, so there's some evidence for her in real life. So we know she was a real person. Um, just summarized, Danny. I know that was the summary, Fabu. I'm sorry. That's I'm trying to. I'm. Yeah, no, I know. Lot, yeah. <laughs> this is. Yeah. So we have two pieces of evidence that tell us for sure that she was a real woman. Um, an Arab scholar called Ibn Hakul wrote about her at the same time. So he's contemporaneous, meaning he lived at the same time as her. Um, and another one is um, History of the Patriarchs of the Egyptian Church, which has a, a primary document from Alexandria in the church that is from that time period talking about a woman who ruled in Ethiopia or uh, in Aksum at the time. Okay, so the, the, the document from Ibn Hakul, the Arab, writes, uh, says that as regards Abyssinia, for many years it has had a woman as its ruler. It is she who killed the king of Abyssinia, who is known under the title of Hadani or Hatsani, and she continues this day to dominate her own country and the neighboring regions of the land to the Hatsani in the west of Abyssinia. It is a vast, limitless country rendered difficult of access by deserts and wastes. So that tells us we know that someone who lived at that time was writing about this woman who ruled, so we know she was real. Um, again, I'll, I'll summarize the one from the church in Alexandria. At that point in time, there was some shenanigans going on with the metropolitan. I don't know. What's the word in our language for the metropolitan? You know what I'm talking about, right? The person. Yeah, the Abun. Okay. Mm -hmm. there, an Abun hadn't been sent for some time, something like 30 years. Yeah. So the king who ruled after Yodit was asking for a new Abun to be sent, saying, you know, we've returned to God and all this. So we know, and, uh, and also that um, for 30 years prior, that uh, a woman had ruled uh, Aksu. So we know Yodit is real. Um, I'm going to try and go through this. I'll just give the conclusions. Essentially, what this guy manages to do with all the evidence is show us that um, the stories that are told about Yodit were meant to um, demonize her by the incoming next uh, rulers from Showa and delegitimize her. And so the evidence shows, I can send you this later, Uncle, this article, it's amazing. Mm -hmm. The evidence shows that she was almost certainly an Aksumite princess, mm -hmm. descended from the royal line, like you said in the story. She probably married Mara Teklahamanut, who was from Lasta, an Agal. Um, was she killed in Aksum? I don't think so. If you look at the time period of when how long she ruled. She ruled actually, I think, 40 years from what we know. Mm -hmm. So she was probably really old when she died. She probably died of old age. Um, but we know she ruled for roughly 40-ish years and that the history around her has been changed to create um, a sort of, you know, ideology that fits the new, you know, uh, rulers. So, and we also know that the Zagwe dynasty was dis descended from her. Um, the evidence also shows that um, Dilnaud, who's said to be in some uh, accounts the last ruler of Aksum, was probably her son. And that, uh, have you heard of Ambasa Wuddam? 
I think the father of uh, Dunna Arya. Well, that's the thing. In this document, it shows he was probably um, a descendant of Dilnaut, not the father. Mm-hmm. And that certain kings who were Zagwe kings who came later were, um, how do, they were changed as being Aksumite kings because they were, you know, Christians who did good things and they didn't want to slander their names. So that's another thing he shows is that the king's list that, that they have, there's different versions. Some of them are very uh, clearly altered for political purposes, right? Mm-hmm. And we also see that in the um, Kebra Negast, mm-hmm. where um, it says at some point that the, uh, at some point it says something like, and a woman shall never rule Ethiopia again. Mm-hmm. So that's very <laughs> obvious yeah. statement of who they're talking about. Who wifed mm-hmm. her? Who wifed her? Mara Teklahaimanot from Lasta mm. is the most likely. We see him mentioned many, many times. We also know if he's from Lasta, that means he was in Agdal. And we know there's a connection between the Zagwe dynasty and the uh, and all the stuff that happened at that time. We also do know that things moved further east, exactly as you said. We also see um, there's another paper I read that shows rock-hewn churches in Tigray. So throughout Eastern Tigray, and I think other places, there are rock-hewn churches. Around the time when King Lalibela created, um, what's the name of the big famous one in Lalibela? Uh, Gorgis. Dus Gorgis and the other ones, because there's other ones, correct? Yeah, there's, yeah, there's um, Liban, uh, Abalivanos, Dus Mercorios. Uh, mm-hmm. There's like 11, 11 of them, Emmanuel. Yeah. Around the time those are made, rock-hewn churches stop being made in Tigray. Mm-hmm. for a period of about 100 to 200 years. Mm-hmm. And then, after the Zagwe dynasty falls, we see Rakhine churches being made again in Tigray. Mm-hmm. So it's most likely that the builders for those churches came directly from Tigray. Um, so I, th- basically what I'm trying to say here, I'm not sure if I'm being clear, is that we, we know that the Yodit was likely an Aksumite princess. Also, the evidence shows that she was probably a perfectly fine ruler, that people liked her. It's possible that Aksum re-expanded for a, a bit under her a rule. She ruled for 40 years, so it must have been somewhat peaceful. Um, we also know that Dilna Aud probably was her son and not the actual um, the person that she killed, because that's a story that gets... There's lots of different versions of the story. It gets a little bit confusing. Mm-hmm. Dilna Aud was probably her son, the Zagwa dynasty descended from uh, probably this Aksumite princess, princess. And the next dynasty, the Shawan dynasty, didn't like that. And obviously they wanted to, they had to legitimize their rule. So they created these stories as a way of slandering the previous dynasty and Yodit and then legitimizing themselves. So a good um, analogy I like to use is before Germany became a unified country in Europe in roughly the 1800s, there was a, a state that was basically the German state called the Holy Roman Empire, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The Holy Roman Empire considered itself a successor state to the Roman Empire, right? But it was mm-hmm. basically just a German country with a name called the Roman, uh, Holy Roman Empire. And um, there was a French philosopher, I think it was Voltaire, who said that the Holy Roman Empire is neither holy nor Roman nor an empire, right? <laughs> so the, the relationship between the Shoan dynasty, the Zagwa dynasty, 
and the Aksumites is very, very interesting. Um, do you have any commentary, any clarification? Yeah, a few things is uh, now that you mentioned it, um, even the name Dil Naod is not good. Orthogonia. So oh. that, that definitely contains. So the word Dil mm -hmm. uh, it means victory. Uh, it's in Amharic and uh, possibly in Ago as well. Okay. Uh, so it's a possibility that, uh, well, I wouldn't say evidence for it, but I mean, circumstantially, it can it, prove. It makes more sense yeah. that if he has an Agawish kind of name, mm -hmm. that he would be the descendant of her. Yeah. Okay. Uh, sorry, go on. Yeah. And uh, also with the story of uh, Ga'awa, um, mm -hmm. some also put it to, again, uh, uh, her being in uh, this place called Indamukhoni, or not too mm -hmm. far from there. Uh, so why I say that and why that's funny is because Indamukhoni borders Wag Khamra. Mm -hmm. Wag Khamra meaning Lasta, Lalibala, and, and that area, which was traditionally Ago speaking. Mm -hmm. So that definitely shows another uh, relationship between the two. Uh, and then again, also, um, later on, we'll see um, the descendants of Maratakraimanot go all the way down to Dekka uh, Shum Agana. So Shum Agana, Waldu, Shum Agana, Kumalit. They they claim this descendancy from Maratakla Hamanot, which is interesting. Oh, the Shumagame does? Yeah. Oh, so, okay. So, Suagadis, uh, Wallu, uh, Shumkumalit, like their, their lineage or their their um, claim to fame mm -hmm. is, is through uh, Maratakla Hamanot. And uh, why that's interesting is that these are two Kashitic speaking people, meaning the yeah. Ago speaking and Saho speaking. So, that, that's definitely interesting there. But as you as you mentioned already, the the whole situation between Maratakla Hemanot, um Dil Naod and Ambasawadim is very vague and mm -hmm. it's not definitive. So we don't really know exactly what it is, but again, like you hit it on the nail. Yeah, um there's a few questions here. So let's see. So all these stories about her destroying Axum is fake news. Probably, again, we don't know, but it's definitely propaganda. So that's something to be keep in mind that the, all these stories being told served a purpose because then if she's a horrible person who destroyed Aksum and destroyed all this stuff, then we know that all her descendants are horrible people and illegitimate. Um, is there a specific book to read on Yodit you guys recommend? I don't think there's any books. This article is great. Um, I don't think I can link it, but I can give you guys the title. So it's the Queen of the Habesha in Ethiopian History, Tradition, and Chronology. Um, and I'll try and write that down later. Tell Please us how much she destroyed. Well. I will send that to you. Tell us how much that she destroyed. Um, we don't know. Again, uh, that's some of the previous uh, question. We don't know. Could have been nothing. She reigned for 40 years, which means, you know, she was around for a long time. I, I doubt she would go around destroying a kingdom that she ruled for 40 years. It doesn't quite make sense, right? Um, Yodit sounds like Pharaoh Hatshepsut in Egypt. Interesting. I will put it in the Discord. I, no, it's not in the Discord. I will put it in the Discord. Um, okay. So if anyone has any questions, we're basically sort of like done because I didn't want to read a 34-page paper and bore you guys. But um, if you have any questions, put them in the question box. Is there anything you want to talk about or anything you want to say? Um, was she Muslim? I don't think so. I don't think so. I know where you're, why you're asking it. There's a version of that story where um, she is Muslim. Um, there's also uh, um, an account that calls her Bani al-Hamiwaya or something mm -hmm. like that. Yes, from Sudan, yeah. 
Yeah. Um, and I think that this guy, he has a, I wish I could find it. There's a point where he talks about that and how it might be a mistranslation of actually something uh, is in Tigray and it gets mixed up. But unlikely that she's Muslim, probably an Aksumite. Um, but there, there's more, there's more, um, more of a, an account of her being Jewish. Yes, that, I've heard that a lot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's very interesting. You know, we can talk about this for now. Um, the relationship between Agos, Jews, and the Beta Israel. There's a mm -hmm. lot going on there. Mm -hmm. um, sorry, I'll interrupt myself quick. Was there any, guys, put the question in the question box. It's easier to, to, for me to come back to them later. Was there any form of currency that was printed with her face just like her predecessors? No, because she ruled roughly 930 AD-ish to 970-ish. And coins stopped being printed. I don't remember the exact date. I have it uh, here. Roughly, I think, 500, 600-ish. No, not 500, 600-ish. So coins stopped being uh, used roughly 300-ish years before she was um, ruling. But, uh, yeah, Agos, Jews, Beta Israel. A lot, something a lot of people don't realize is the Beta Israel, before they spoke Amharic and Tigrinya, in the past 100 years, they actually spoke Aga languages. Um, and uh, what else? What was I going to say? So there does seem to be like a historic relationship between those three groups. Um, it's also important to know, though, that when people use the term uh, Jewish in many historical records in Tigray and Ethiopia, sometimes it meant non-believer. Yes. Yeah. yeah, it didn't necessarily always mean that person is a Jew. Sometimes it just meant this person is a non-believer. So um, it could be that they, they meant she's an actual Jew. Could be it just meant she was like a non-believer. But it is interesting to note that, you know, that there's a relationship between she's married to an Ago. She founded the Zagwa dynasty. We know that the Beta Israel spoke uh, um, Ago languages and they're, you know, said to be Jews. So that's all uh, very interesting. Is there anything you have to add? You know, that, that's, that's definitely it. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. So someone else uh, asks, isn't one of the rumors that she broke one of the Aksum's Hawaltis? Um, Yeah, I read that in this. Again, seems unlikely. I think the account is she broke it with an iron axe. Seems tough. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. I think the the more um, attested account is that uh, the the thirty three foot long uh, I think it's thirty three feet or thirty three meters 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 yeah I meters think, no? sorry yeah meters yeah yeah, I'm, I'm mm -hmm. of, yeah but yeah thirty three meter um, how old he fell once it was erected yeah that's so, what I heard uh, yeah so I think that would be more of the the understandable situation yeah I um someone asks Beta Israel they never been into Gray. No, they, they they definitely were. They definitely were. Okay. Uh, what areas? Could, I don't know. So, um, with the account during uh, Izana or uh, Abraha Natuha, mm -hmm. the uh, the Jews that revolted uh, at the time were banished to the west. So, anywhere within Aksum's uh, countryside towards Shada, there's like grave sites in Shada that you mm -hmm. that you can find. Askaret Zambala, which is in Labaguna, Shararo, mm -hmm. Walkait, Adanamat, Humara. Agada, Talamti, Armacho. Of course, when, when getting into Gondor, you'll see, you'll see places like Kwara, Dambia. Um, mm -hmm. Let me see. 
I want to say Abdurrahman. Uh, and a few other places as well that I can't really mm-hmm. think of off the top of my head. But they had their kingdom in that area, meaning the Simian area or like anywhere between like Shara and uh, Sudan, anything mm-hmm. in between was like this Gideon empire. So okay. that, that, that's where they were centered. Okay. I heard she killed lots of priests. I heard she lit the city on fire. Um, again, I don't know. I don't like, I get, I, I think... Mm-hmm. It doesn't make sense to me that someone would take over a kingdom and then just destroy everything. I'm of the belief personally, and again, this is just a theory based off of what this guy wrote, that it seems most likely that she was an Aksumite princess. She ruled really, really well, because um, it shows in this article that I'm talking about that in earlier accounts she's written uh, about in a very, very positive manner. They talk about her as a wonderful queen, and then we can see later on things get more and more negative. Um, there's also an interesting little thing here, a little tidbit in here where it talks about how when they finally do get a new Abuna, the Abuna comes and, um, he goes to exterminate the cult of the snake near Lake Hike. And then, you know, we spoke about that. Yeah. I'm always yeah. on, <laughs> you know, so if the you snake. guys, you guys got to in the audience, the people who've been here since episode one and two. You got to know the significance of the cult of the snake. And then, you know, the land of Punt and all that. Um, it's the misogyny. Yeah, why not? We we do see in early, like, so we talked about this, um, I think, in the ancient times of the kingdom of Diamat, we see that the, the kings of that kingdom wouldn't just list their male ancestors. They would also list their female ancestors. So they would say, I am the son of this person who is my father and this person who is my mother, which is very rare. So that meant the maternal line was also important. We also, I, and I forget again, I, I, you know, I had to read this and take some notes really quickly. But there is some evidence that shows that a woman ruling in Aksum wasn't maybe that big of a deal. But afterwards, we see with the Shoan dynasty that changes and it's, you know, a woman can never rule again. Um, it can only go through the male line. And so on and so forth. So yeah, misogyny could have definitely played a role. Um, what was I going to say? Something about oh, okay. So what period did the nine saints come into? Mm-hmm. So the nine saints, uh, the date is traditionally dated as 480 AD. Okay. Uh, so fifth century, and uh, they were active up until uh, the mid uh, sixth century. Okay. And where did the nine saints come from? So they predominantly came from Syria. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, Asia Minor, Syria, as east as as west as probably uh, Constantinople, mm-hmm. which is in present-day Turkey. Mm-hmm. But again, uh, they were of Syrian origin. How we know this is uh, the use of the the title Mar, uh, which mm-hmm. is Syrian, not uh, not English, and uh, it would mean master or lord. Uh, mm-hmm. Which is just generally a title given to like uh, honorary figures, like bishops, uh, saints. And the mm-hmm. such. So, um, yeah, so they came from uh, essentially uh, from Syria and the Syrian speaking areas and came to, to Aksum first, spent time mm-hmm. uh, in Aksum, maybe 10 to 20 years, and then shifted towards places like Adwa, um, like Dabagarima, Jabramadara, Warilaha, Ahasa'a, Sawadamu, Hausian, even as far south as uh, Maicho. Okay. Um, 
Here's a question I have for you. Why are so many churches in parts of Tigray in places that are very difficult to get to? Is there a yeah, reason that, for that? Uh, yeah, so I mean, um, well, a lot of these churches were actually monasteries. Okay, so, so uh, these are, the, okay. Yeah, so as monasteries, they, they made it difficult because they wanted to remove themselves from the world or from okay. society. So they, they chose the, the toughest of terrains, uh, the hardest living conditions, just because they would be that ascetical. Mm -hmm. uh, so living comfortably is something against uh, monasticism. So they mm -hmm. look at comfort as something, um, I guess, uh, opposing to the monastic life. Okay. Yeah. So that's, that's okay. How it so it's it's mostly monasteries that are in the difficult places. Yeah. Okay. Because you know they talk about the rock hewn churches in Tigray, and then you see them going up, yeah. like some mountain or like a goat, and then it's just like it's in the middle of like a cliff, and then there's just like a window, and you're like, what? Yeah. <laughs> what are these people doing? Yeah. Especially places like, example, in that Bayouhani in Tambien, Gara uh, mm -hmm. with Aouni uh, Ma'ata, Devredamo, and Daba Salama. And another thing is, is that it, it, the the going through the church is showing like the spiritual life, which is something hard to obtain or something that that is definitely difficult, right? So the the, the Christian is not to be living in comfort, but to continuously be renewing themselves and leaving societal norms. And kind of pushing for this uh, struggled life towards God. You're struggling. You're, you're leaving the the more comfortable, worldly things, the pleasurable things, for mm -hmm. you know, the heavenly things. So that level of difficulty is kind of represented in the in the journey too. And then again, the churches being on top of these cliffs or mountains kind of show the um, the the elevation of the, the the spiritual life versus the worldly life. So going to the church, you're elevating towards God. So ta'arga habasama. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Someone also said it's to stay away, uh, to stay hidden away from enemies. Is that and that's mm -hmm. that's definitely another one. Uh, a lot of monasteries were also jailed at the same time. Oh, so people would be jailed in monasteries, and uh, mm -hmm. so they they would be able to hide things. Like, for example, Debredamo is one of the only places not to be uh, touched by uh, people like uh, Amir Grant. Um, mm -hmm. Also, the the holy uh, not, not holy family, sorry, the the royal family hid in Debredam during the okay. fight. So uh, again, with the the claim with the Yorid Gudit, the one where she's presented as this warrior queen, uh, mm -hmm. shows her uh, shows the royal family actually hiding in Debredam. Mm -hmm. uh, so that that's that's another claim as well. Okay. Um, here's a, a another question. I love asking questions like this. How did, um, like one time I asked my grandma, how did people sleep back in the day before, you know, the modern Farash? Aha. Uh -huh. She told me they would make like a, a, a skin from, uh, you know, they'd get the skin of an animal and then they'd sew it together and they'd fill it with like soft stuff. Mm -hmm. And then that's how they would sleep. Yeah. So this is my question. Um, so if, say there's, you know, a hard uh, to get to monastery, how do the monks there get food and supplies? Yeah, so they would actually carry it as they climb. Oh, okay. And they would tie it around themselves and then they would have it passed on from person to person. Mm -hmm. uh, with places like Debredamo, they actually have rope, uh, again, made out of skin that mm -hmm. they would tie things with and then pull up. Okay. So like example, the bed that you mentioned now, um, I had the uh, opportunity and the blessing to actually sleep on it for a year. <laughs> okay. While, uh, in a Bagarima monastery. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and these are these are things that the monks would make tra- traditionally by hand. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the monks are not just spiritual people, but they're also very handy. So mm-hmm. a lot of handcrafts, uh, they call it it uh, adab. Which mm-hmm. is anything you do by hand, making crosses, woodwork, uh, firework, um, sorry, um, metalwork, so mm-hmm. on and so forth, would be done by a lot of the monks, if not by communities specifically made for them. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, I had another question. Uh, I totally forgot because I was reading the comments. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> oh, what was... The uh, to bring it back to the nine saints, what was the legacy of the nine saints in terms of the church? So every monastery traces its spiritual lineage to the nine saints, specifically Awan Aragal. So there's a statement okay. in Giz. Uh, which is okay. he he who says that he's not born of uh, Awan Aragawi is a liar. Because every, okay. mon- because every monastery descends from this uh, this order, and Awan uh, Aragawi actually specifically from him, not from any of the other saints. No, no, specifically from him. Some of the okay. other saints are possible, but even at that, amongst the nine saints, Awan Aragawi was the first to okay. become a monk. Awan mm-hmm. um, Garima is the first saint to be uh, to be um, consecrated a monk in Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are monks that have came to Ethiopia prior to the nine saints. But they did not establish the monasteries with, uh, oh, okay. they call it Hadinat, which is basically the monks that live together. So in monasticism, there's about two or three uh, divisions. There's monks that live together as communities, and then there's ones that live separately, like Bahatawis. So mm-hmm. Bahatawis are more informal, and then the Hadinat system is a, is a formal mon- uh, monastery. So there were monasteries using the Bahatinat uh, system. Which is just individual monks, just or um, like a hermit it? almost. Herm- yes, hermits. Yes. So okay. there'd be hermits, but there wouldn't be monks per se. Mm-hmm. So the nine saints actually brought that system to Ethiopia, and it was expounded and brought a, and it, like put pretty much put everywhere uh, everywhere else. So important saints like Awana Taklahemanot has his lineage from Devadamma, which is Awana Argali. Uh, mm-hmm. Other saints like, for example, Yesus Moa. Mm-hmm. From Dhamma. Uh Abba Yohani, Dhamma. Um Awana Samuel, by lineage, Devadamma. Uh Awana Medhani exists, so on and so forth. So Okay, so do monks like does a monk feel like they have like you know in how in our culture we have like your your dad puts you on his lap and he tells you you're so and so and then and then and then and you've got all your dads and your yeah, dads yeah. and dad's heads? Do yeah. you and that's your lineage? Does a monk have a monk's lineage? Like you have a father, a monk's father, and so on and so forth? Yes, exactly. They they have this system. And uh, so, example, um, it said that he is the seventh generational son of Awanaragal. So counting his generation, he was uh, consecrated a monk by Abba, Abba Yohani. Abba Yohani mm-hmm. of Devadamu. And Abba Yohani is sixth from Awanaragal. Meaning... He had an abbot who had an abbot who had an abbot, which goes back to uh, Abargal. Okay. And the abbot is the head of a monastery. Exactly, yes. Okay. Okay, so the, wow. And did the nine saints all come at the same time, or did they come at separate times? Uh, eight of them came together. Abagarima came, uh, came last. Okay. Okay. Here, here's another question. Why did the nine saints come to Aksu? So during the, uh, yeah, that's a good question. And a lot of people don't know this, but um, there was a an issue in the church. 
So mm-hmm. the way Christianity was set was that, of course, it was it was a faith started by the the apostles and, of course, Christ. Mm-hmm. And um, up, it was kind of informal up until um, the fourth century, in which we had the first ecumenical council, the Council of Nicaea. Uh, so the, anytime there's like a, a heresy going on uh, in the church, uh, the bishops would congregate together, but the ecumenical council would be the bishops from the whole Christian world. So in the fourth ecumenical council in um, 451, which is the Council of Chalcedon, which was the essentially the line in which we say that the Oriental Orthodox, which is our church, the Egyptians and the Syrians, Indians and Armenians, and obviously the Urchins, um, split from the Eastern Orthodox, which is the Greek the um, the catholics of course at the time and as well as russians and uh, it was due to the nature of christ how did we understand christ was he fully god fully man uh, at what level was these two natures uh connected or they mixed uh, these were these were the, the topics so with that debate and with that separation of the church there was persecutions in europe uh, going as far east as of course uh, persia even so with these persecutions, they came to Ethiopia as Ethiopia was this land of, of uh, very welcoming people. So they came seeking, uh, seeking help. And uh, the king of Aksum obviously took them in, protected them, they stayed. And uh, the way they paid back the king was by translating books. So they, of course, staying in Aksum for 10 to 20 years, learned Ge'ez, learned the culture, learned the society. And then that's when you get the translation of a lot of books, like the Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, as many say, uh, the first seven languages uh, that, that the Bible was translated into directly from its original Greek, the New Testament, Giz uh, is one of them. So we see a lot of translations starting from Abbas Salama, but predominantly we understand it through the nine saints. And uh, the most important one we have is the Gerima Gospels, written by uh, Saint Awanagarima. Uh, okay, awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, someone wants to know, does Abuna Aragawi, did he have any kits? Spiritually, yes. Physically, <laughs> but no. Okay, I assumed that was the answer. Um, okay, so we have ten minutes left. We have a few questions. Um, Fabu said, "Wait, where did the saints even come from?" I think you said earlier they mostly came from Syria. Yeah. Okay. Um, I don't know. Do you know what this means? These are just places. Metema Johannes. Abderafi Abrahajira. Abrahajira. Yeah, these are in uh, present-day Amhara region, which border mm-hmm. the the western uh, Tigray. So if you go south south of Sagada or Salamti, you get, mm-hmm. uh, as I mentioned earlier, I don't know if you remember, there's places like Abderafi, which is toward mm-hmm. the west, bordering Sudan. You have uh, uh, Abrahajira, which is just east of there. Uh, Metma Yohannes, which is south uh, south mm-hmm. of uh, Abderafi. Um, and, the, and, and Metama Johannes is titled uh, Metama Johannes because of Ad Johannes and him mm-hmm. dying there. Okay. Uh, so it, it's traditionally uh, said, I mean, this is obviously up for debate depending on who you ask. Uh, mm-hmm. These are Tigranic speaking areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, Abdurrafa sounds Arabic, but Abdurrafa, yeah. I mean, can be, can be looked at differently, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so those, those are areas in present day Semen Gondar. Okay. Um, yeah. Well, um get into that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um so after you guys are done discussing the Aksumai Empire, will you continue to talk about the history of Ethiopia specifically Tigray up to current events? Yeah, well that's the goal. Is we're gonna go ideally up to like Johannes and then maybe we can jump back and go into more detail on specific times 
Because like this was very, very general. Like I have a book that I still haven't read. I've maybe read like 20 pages. That's just about the relationship between the Byzantine Empire, so the Eastern Roman Empire, and the Axuman Empire in a period of 12 years where they tried to take over an island between um, Arabia and the Horn of Africa so that they can Sokotri. control the spice trade. Exactly, so yes, yes, yes. It's just about that, like yeah. all this communications they had. So like our history is so rich. We'll get there, don't worry. Um, Tzion wants to know, does all Orthodox don't believe the same thing? Correct me if I'm wrong, but we're called uh, Oriental Orthodox. Yes. And then there's others that are Eastern Orthodox, which would be like Greece, Ro uh, Russia, whatever. And I, I think the differences are very, very minute. Very minute. Very. Okay. Uh, um, so did you have something else to add? or? Yeah, no, I was just going to say uh, dogmatically, the Oriental Orthodox are the same. Uh, mm -hmm. We have a few differences doctrinally amongst each other. So like, example, topics like St. Mary and um, and also mm -hmm. the communion may be different, uh, specifically with Armenians with communion. And with St. Mary, uh, the Ethiopian church, uh, and by extension, obviously, the Eritrean church have a teaching a little similar to uh, Catholicism or to okay. Islam. Uh, mm -hmm. But um, I mean, amongst the, the scholars of uh, the Tuado church, I mean, there there are debates. Um, amongst with the again with the Eastern Orthodox, like you said, is very minute. Um, we essentially believe the same thing. Essentially, okay. um, when I visited Aksu, I learned how Tigrayans may have been the first people to create and implement a ruler to measure. Can you talk about this? Have you heard anything about that? Yeah. So uh, there's a, a tomb of Nugus um, Romhai. Okay. And right, be right beside the tomb, there's a traditional ruler cut in stone. Um, so measurements were obviously precise. I mean, with the old world, we don't really know the tools and things that they've used, like how they built the, the Haoti, we really don't know. Uh, so, mm -hmm. and like, if you see the Haoti, it's very precise. So what tools they were using, we don't really know what like, measurements. I mean, we do see, uh, like example, the traditional ruler. Uh, that I like to call it. Um, so I mean, it's there, but we don't really know, or we don't yeah. really understand it. Yeah, it's crazy. The Haolti is like they're made from a single stone. That's what's crazy about them. People don't realize it's it's one piece of stone, and some of them are huge. They're massive. So I mean, it makes sense to me that the biggest one fell. Something happened. Yeah. Yeah. But if you look at the other ones, I don't know how much they weigh, but they probably weigh like a few hundred tons. And imagine, never mind constructing it, but attempting to lift it and not have it fall over. That's all, you know, an amazing uh, sort of feat of construction. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, uh, I think we're done for now. I think Instagram is going to shut us down in a few minutes. So we might as well finish here. Um, is it true they're granite? I don't. No, I'm not too sure. Some sort of stone. I don't know. I'm not a geologist. They're made out of some sort of one piece of stone, though. They're made out of one giant piece. That's the thing. They're not made from several pieces stacked on uh, upon each other. And they're funerary. They're funerary stelae, meaning they're meant to sort of like commemorate a dead, uh, important person. Um, and I think they're also supposed to look like false houses, mm. right? So they have doors and windows. Uh, and stuff like that. They could be granite, Fabu, I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, we're done for today. So after this, 
Um, we'll, I don't know how much of the Zagwa period we'll be doing. I don't think there's that much info, but we'll try and touch on it. And then we'll probably move on to the, there's very fun stuff in the 13th, 14th century with rebellions and stuff like that. And so we'll, um, we'll talk about that next one. So two weeks from now, thank you everybody for showing up. You've been wonderful. Thank you, uh, uncle for being here and for helping me out. Um, yeah. Uh, hopefully we'll see you guys next time. Bye. Sure.